So the phrase throwing in the towel has its origins in the boxing ring. The idea there would be that the corner people of a, of a boxer, his trainers and his managers, it were, would be in his corner. They're the people who attended to him between rounds. They could be in the corner during a round and watching their fighter getting absolutely beaten, beaten to death. Maybe, but he's not, he doesn't have enough coherence to stop the fight himself. Doesn't recognize just how badly he's hurt. The ref hasn't chosen to stop the fight for whatever reason, and he hasn't been knocked out yet because that certainly would stop the fight. Um, the ring or the um, trainers could choose to grab one of their towels and throw it out in the middle of the ring and say, we're done, we give up, and do it for him on his behalf because he couldn't do it himself or wouldn't do it himself. But... but I think we've moved that phrase into regular life as well, but it's, we actually, instead of somebody else doing it for us, we choose to be the ones that throw in the towel, right? It can be something as simple as you're playing games with somebody. Maybe you're playing checkers with somebody and you're, you've lost to them 10 times in a row and you're like, I'm throwing in the towel. I give up. I'm out. I'm done. This is useless. All I'm doing is getting hurt. This ain't going to work, right? Maybe I'll try again later with some more training but or more practice, but I'm done. I give up is really what throwing in the towel is. Maybe maybe you've thrown in the towel in a job that, that was constantly just driving you nuts. You kept trying to improve the situation. It was never getting better, and so you quit. Maybe you threw in the towel in a school class that you were working super hard in, but you just didn't get it. And you finally just gave up. You finally just said, I'm done. I can't do it. Or, or maybe you did that with a relationship, right? Where things, you just kept having the same arguments over and over and over again. And you finally just gave up and said, I'm out. Throwing the towel. I'm done. I'm moving on because this is clearly not going to work. When you feel like you're beating a head, your head against a wall when you feel like you're not making progress in anything or that you're having the same challenges over and over and over again. It can begin to feel, regardless of what section of your life you're in, it can begin to feel futile and futile enough that you just go, I'm done. I give up. Thrown in the towel. I'm out of here. It can even happen in your faith. Right? When, when things are going hard or, or you're having a hard time with stuff, maybe you're having difficult financial times or difficult relational times or dif dif difficulties in your health and, and you're, you're going, this just came out of nowhere and it just keeps piling on. It just won't stop. It just keeps coming. It can be tempting if you've prayed enough times to finally just go, why am I even doing this if this isn't? If this isn't solving the problem, it can be tempting to throw in the towel on your faith. It can also be easy to throw, easier at least to throw in the towel on your faith if no one else around you is following God and they're doing fine. And whoever that no one else is, that no one else could be your family, it could be your friends at school, it could be a coworker or a competing company, it could be anyone of a number of things. King David struggled with that. If you go through the Psalms, there are a number of places where David just says, hey God, I got a question for you. Um, I see all these people in these other kingdoms that are not following you, and they seem to be doing pretty well. They're succeeding, their land is growing, they're wealthy, life is good, everybody's healthy and happy. And me and my people, we are struggling over here. 
and I feel like I'm trying to follow you and it's going horribly. It doesn't make sense for me, God. Why? Why is this happening to me? That's a valid question. I think it's part of the human experience to wonder why things are not going the way you'd hoped or the way that you believe they should. Because we've all got these, we've all got dreams, we've all got hopes, we've all got desires, we've all got uh, an idea of how things could and should be. And when they're not, it can be very tempting to start looking at cause, right? And going, what about this isn't working? And what about this might I change? Again, the people of God did that throughout their history in the Old Testament. It was this cycle, really, of them walking away from God because, they, frankly, they saw others had it better than they did in the moment and said, oh, we want that. Let's go worship their God. Or they would say, let's bring their God in here and replace our God with it as though that was going to resolve their problems. And so... They constantly had this cycle of falling away from God and God drawing them back, God calling them back, because that's, that's really the message. The message is, yes, you dropped the ball. Yes, you fell away. Yes, you chose not to follow me. And frankly, guys, that was a mistake. That was an error. But I want to call you back to me. I want to bring you back to me. So it shouldn't be surprising at all that we're still doing that. Right? It shouldn't be surprising that they did it in Jesus' time. It still shouldn't, shouldn't be surprising that we're doing that now, even as so many people, our society as a whole, feels like it's falling away from God. It's moving away from faithfulness, truthfully, um, into a type of faithlessness where they feel like they don't need God anymore. And it can be tempting and it can be easy or feel easy to do, to walk away from Him when the truth is, it's probably the worst mistake we could ever make. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be standing here telling you that. Uh, I believe that that our commitment to God and our faithfulness to him and the gift that comes from knowing his son, Jesus Christ, not only in this life, but in our eternity are the most important gifts we could ever possibly receive. And to give up on our relationship with God or to throw in the towel on our faith is to throw away those gifts too. So we're going to try to walk through some of those challenges in the next six weeks. We're going to try to say, look, if you're struggling in your faith um, and, and you feel like you're trying to walk in faith in a time where everything else around you is faithless, we want to encourage you to persevere, to stick it out because great is your reward in heaven when this is over. And I truthfully also believe great is your reward right now. It may not be what you think it's going to be. It may not change, suddenly change your job. It may not suddenly change um, your relationship. But what it can do is give you the capacity to not just endure, but find opportunities to flourish and flourish in a way that brings glory to God and that truly heals your soul, not just in a a superficial human way, right? Or I'm not talking about a way to get rich. <laughs> I'm not talking about a way to suddenly be super healthy and in perfect condition, perfect physical condition. I am saying this will heal your soul. And as hard as it seems in the moment when things are going horribly, it's so important that instead of pulling away from God, we lean back into him. So we're going to use the book of 2 Kings over the next six weeks 
to walk through some of these situations, really. We're going to consider six people in the next six weeks. Some are kings, hence the name of the book. Some are prophets. But we're going to look at six people who had an opportunity to choose to lean into God or to walk away from him. And their outcomes are profound. And they're the kind of outcomes and the disparity, the difference in those outcomes are things that you can't see in the moment because all life has trouble in some way, shape, or form. And in the moment of that trouble, um, none of it feels great, right? But you often have to look at it in retrospect, look back on it and say, oh yeah, because most of the time, events that seem chaotic or crazy in the moment make more sense later. The name of the series is Faith During Faithfulness, Faithlessness. Faith During Faithlessness, the idea that you're trying to endure and persevere in the midst of it. To set the stage for the book of First and Second Kings, um, and originally they were one book. We're going to kind of walk through what's going on in those books. First and Second Kings kind of chronicles the movement of God's people after the death of King David, that King David that unified the 12 tribes of Israel, King David who, with who God established a, a covenant, a messianic covenant that we know is fulfilled in Jesus. We're lucky enough to know that. They didn't know that then. Um, but he said to them, hey, as long as you keep my commands and walk with me, if you keep your end of the bargain, I will, I will bring you the Messiah. I will stick with you. I will walk with you. I will be with you. And as I just said, their challenge was they didn't always do that. So David has unified the tribes and this messianic king is promised from his line. It's coming and, and, and it will fulfill Abraham's promise, the, God that, the promise that God has given Abraham that dates all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. He said, I'm going to number your descendants like the stars in the sky, right? Or the sands on a beach. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And so David is still living on that. David's people are still living on that. And, and we're going to walk through this long line of kings that came after David. The first one was his son, Solomon, who's known far and wide as being the wisest and richest man that ever lived. But even Solomon, in all of his wisdom and all of his wealth and all of his capacity, even Solomon, by the time he dies, Solomon, his life more resembles that of a pharaoh than that of his father. Yeah, even he has separated himself from God. If you want to find out where he's at, uh, read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's said that he wrote that, and you can hear the heart of a man who recognizes that all of his decisions he had made really were just worthless pursuits in light of what it means to pursue God, of what really matters. The nations, uh, uh, the 12 tribes that David successfully united, have split. They split right after Solomon's death. Uh, to one of his sons and then a general. And they split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And both of those kingdoms will eventually fall because they are unable to remain faithful as everyone around them is becoming faithless. The northern kingdom is has about 20 kings, has 20 kings during their time, and the southern kingdom has 20 kings. The northern kingdom is 20 for 20 bad kings, 
20 for 20 kings that wanted to have nothing to do with God and were constantly dragging their people away from God to worship Baal, to worship Molech, to worship Ashtara, to worship them even. 20 for 20, not a, not a good average, right? The southern kingdom did slightly better. Um, they only had 12 out of 20 that were considered bad kings. <laughs> they actually had eight that did their best to try to follow God. And those are going to be some of the people that we look at this, this, during this series. But none of them lived up to the expectations of Abraham's promise. And as I said, there, are, there were expectations, right? It was, if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, then I will be with you. Sometimes we forget that our relationship with God still has some expectations. And so both kingdoms ultimately fell. This first and second kings also really kind of um, brings to life the role of prophet in, in the eyes of God's kingdom. Now, Samuel was certainly a prophet before that, but, but you really get an opportunity to see how prophets interacted with kings and with the people of Israel. Prophets, we sometimes think when we hear that word, we think of fortune tellers, people who are looking at a crystal ball going, God's gonna do this in the future. And, and to an extent, there is some of that, but most of the time, really prophets were watchers of the covenant. They were really the people who spoke on behalf of the Lord. They would identify what God was doing in their current time, and sometimes would find themselves holding accountable the kings and the people of God. And, and so that meant identifying that they were not doing what God wanted them to do in this time and that there would be consequences for those actions. That's the future telling is, guys, this is the path you're on. This road goes over a cliff. I'm trying to tell you to stop, but if you keep walking, you're gonna fall, right? And as most people are when they're being corrected, when they don't like being told that they're not doing what they need to be doing um, or should be doing to being, being faithful to God, that maybe what they're thinking or feeling is not godly or just flat wrong, um, they get defensive and they get a little angry. And if you're a king, uh, you, if you get angry at a prophet, you could just take them out. That's risky business. We could talk about that at another time. But the truth is, they're not popular. Prophets are not popular people during their lifetimes. They are often sneered at. They are often left to live destitute. They are often pushed out on their own. And, and if they bring a message to a king the king doesn't like to hear, there are multiple places where the king just says, I don't like that answer. You're out. <laughs> You're done. It's got nothing to do with whether or not it's, it's righteous or it's being faithful to God. It has everything to do with, I don't want to hear it, so you're out of here. It's really only after they die that their words become appreciated. As they can look back in the rearview mirror and say, oh, that guy was right. <laughs> we should have listened. That kind of persecution is something that, that Jesus felt as well. And that truthfully, he... He warned us that as his people, we would probably face the same kind of derision. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he's talking to his disciples. He's wrapping up something we call the Beatitudes. 
Um, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Just verses 11 and 12, though, it says, You are blessed when they insult you and they persecute you and they falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, right? When, when you're talking about the things of God and you're trying to call people back to God, sometimes even God's people will look at you funny and go, No, I'm not listening. And then in verse 12, he says, Be glad and rejoice. Tough sell. But be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you, right? These people that have been speaking God's truth since the beginning of time, there have been a significantly large percentage of people that did not want to hear it and treated them poorly because of it. It wasn't different then. It wasn't different than that for Jesus, and it won't be different than that for us if we are truly willing to speak out and speak up for faith during a time of faithlessness. So the two that we're going to look at today out of the book of First and Second Kings, and, and their stories kind of straddle the transition between First Kings and Second Kings, are the stories of Elijah and his protege, the one who would follow him, Elisha. So Good luck following me on the pronunciations. I'm going to do my best. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is known throughout uh, the lands as probably the most prominent prophet. Um, he's held in such amazing high esteem. And, and the incident we're going to talk the incident, the moment we're going to talk about today kind of highlights why um, in some ways. Because, because he is known as one of only a few people in all of Scripture that didn't actually die, that were just taken to heaven. He shares that with Enoch and with Jesus as Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection. So Elijah is a powerful prophet of God and spent most of his ministry was during the reign of King Ahab. And if you know the stories of Ahab and Jezebel, they begin in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. Ahab was not a great guy. Again, one of the 20 for 20 bad kings. <laughs> and his wife Jezebel was certainly the source of part of it. Um, she was certainly someone who manipulated and twisted and was vindictive and um, brought in the worship of Baal and started building temples to Baal. And her husband allowed it and helped it to happen. Elijah's story is filled with great movements of God. It's, it's God <laughs> descending and raining fire on the prophets of Baal. And it's a, an incredible story out of 1 Kings 18. If you haven't read Elijah and the prophets of Baal, please do it. It's like one of the greatest moments ever. <laughs> and he's got some of the greatest lines in all of the Bible. It's so awesome. <laughs> he also, though, is there during a time of extreme difficulty. There is a famine that has enveloped the land in much, during much of his ministry. And, and that's creating some hard times. And, and again, in those hard times, that's when people start looking next door and going, well, that guy's doing better than me right now. So, you know, maybe we're on the wrong side of this God thing. And so as we enter the story, though, um, Elijah's time is coming to an end. Elijah's time is coming to an end. And his protege's time, Elisha, is, is just beginning that type of transition from one generation to the next, it's always very, very difficult. 
first of all, it's very difficult for the, the previous generation to finish the race. And then there are some challenges with whoever's coming next, right? Whoever's following. So we're going to kind of walk through the choices they make to remain faithful during this, especially Elisha, the protege, the choices he makes to be faithful during a time when everyone else around him except his mentor is faithless. So let's, let's roll in. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read verses 2 through 14 today. We're going to start with 1 through 6. It says this, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read out of the CSB. It says, The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord is sending me on to Bethel. But Elisha replied, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, Don't you know, do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? He said, Yes, I know. Be quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me to Jericho. But Elisha said, As long as the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. And so they went to Jericho. Then the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho came to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be quiet. <laughs> Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord is sending me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. The three locations that, that God has drawn Elijah to, Bethel and Jericho and the Jordan River, have a long history with the Jewish people. It is first Bethel. Is, is the place, is the site of Jacob's ladder, the, the ladder up to heaven that Jacob saw. It's the site of so many of the events of God's people. But in this time, it's also the home to a temple built by the northern kings that is intended to compete with Judah's temple in Jerusalem. And it kind of really exemplifies the divide that God's people are having. It's no wonder why he's choosing to send him there. And, and, and really, the prophet's command and commitment to step into the gap, the gap between God's people and the gap between his people and God himself. So both the vertical, rela the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship that they are supposed to have with one another, the prophet's commitment is to step into that gap and to speak the things of God to all, hoping to draw them all back together and all up to him. He then goes on to Jericho, the site of great victories, right? It, um, out of the book of Joshua with the, the walls come crashing down as they march around and they're able to take the city of Jericho, this city of commerce, this city that is a, the center of um, a ton of the trade routes of the area and, and the direct shot to Jerusalem comes through there. And it's also the site where the people of God rallied together behind the cause that God had given them, right? They rallied together to him and fulfilled his will and were able to take a city that no one else could ever take. And, and that, there's something powerful about that imagery, right? He drew them back to Jericho, I think, to remind them to remind Elisha, this is, the, this is what can happen 
when God's people are all pulling together, when we are being faithful to God as one, while everyone else may be being faithless, that's, that's not where we need to be drawn to. We need to return to that connection to God. And then finally, he ends up at the Jordan River, the place where Moses divided the waters so God's people can enter the promised land. And also the place that we know where Jesus's ministry would begin, the one who would build a permanent bridge over that gap, the gap between God and his people for those who are willing to take the bridge. God certainly chose Elijah's final steps with purpose, but Elisha, his response here also teaches us some super important things. Two times he says, he is confronted with people saying, hey, you know, the Lord is going to take your master away from you today, right? I remember a story that my wife tells about one of my sons, about Josh, um, when he was in uh, first grade, I believe. And uh, he came home from school one day and his mom said, hey, hey, how was your day? How are things going? And he kind of just looked at her and goes, mom, let's not talk about the bad things. <laughs> it's kind of this, I don't want to talk about it. And, and you could easily read that into Elisha's response to them, right? Because as soon as they say, don't you know, you're, you, the Lord's going to take your master away today. He says, yes, I know. Be quiet, right? Stop talking. I don't want to hear it. It's the whole, no, 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 no. I'm not listening to this, right? Or could it be that, that to Elisha, this, this eventuality, because it is, it's a truth and it's imminent, it's coming now, is of little importance compared to the moments that he has left with Elijah right now, with his mentor, someone who has been so important in leading his life. Maybe he doesn't want to think about it because he knows the moment. He doesn't want to waste the thoughts. He doesn't want to waste the energy on worrying about what will be when he has a moment now to be with him. And let's remember here, Elisha has a choice. He's got a choice to carry on Elijah's work or knowing all the pain and all the rejection that he's experienced and, and been there with him as he's, as he's experienced it, he could choose to maintain that, continue to carry on Elijah's work, or to walk away. In fact, Elijah gives him three opportunities to walk away, right? He says, stay here, I'm going to the next place. And Elisha says, no, I'm coming with you. And he says, stay here, I'm going to the next place. No, 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 no. I'm coming with you. You're not listening to me. Elijah, I think, is really giving him permission to end his commitment here and now, to say, I'm done. You can be done now. You don't have to do this because I did it. And you don't have to do this if you don't want to. And, and the truth is, that kind of faith, faith is always, always a choice. It's always a conscious decision. And Elijah's making that conscious decision, right? It's kind of like if you've ever seen a movie where the hero is about to undertake this crazy, dangerous thing, or, or he's about to attack the alien, the final boss, and, and the others who have been tagging along with him just aren't strong enough to do it. And he says, you don't need to come with me. It's, it's okay. I've got this. This is my fight. And they all go, no, we're going with you, man. We're with you till the end, Right. That's almost what he's doing here. He's saying, look, and see, the movies don't invent anything. It came way before him. And in fact, it came before this too. It came in the book of Ruth. But 
you see him saying, no, I am with you till the end. You're not getting rid of me that easy. There's a mission to be completed and I'm with you. I'm as invested in it as you are. Each time he says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, as long as you're standing here in front of me alive, I am not leaving you. It's a conscious decision, a conscious decision to savor the moment, a conscious decision to maintain his faith in God and the call he has on his life. Because faith ultimately is a decision. Author Elizabeth Elliot says it this way in, in her book, Secure in the Everlasting Arms. It says, faith is a decision. Faith is not an instinct. Um, because self, self-preservation is often in the instinct, right? But faith is not an instinct. It certainly is not a feeling. Feelings don't help much when you're in the lion's dead, den or hanging on a wooden cross. And I think that's very, very true. And I think that lets us into one of the truths here. Elijah sees the challenge, has experienced the challenges, and he's trying to tell Elisha, hey, if you don't want to do this, I get it. And Elisha says, I know what this means. I know how hard this is going to be. And I'm choosing, I'm making a decision to not try to run away and save myself in this life, but I'm making a decision to stay committed to the, to the eternal calling that you have placed on me or that God has placed on me and that you have the mantle for that you're going to now pass to me, I hope. He doesn't know that yet, but he's sure hoping. That's a conscious choice in the midst of the difficulty, and it may not feel great. It may be frightening. It may be scary. Elisha knows, though. He knows what lies ahead for Elijah and for himself, and he chooses to carry on because God has called him to do so, because he recognizes the value in this mission, the restoration of God's people. It's... it's, If there are things worth dying for, for Elijah and Elisha both, this is worth dying for. And it was certainly worth Jesus dying for as well. Let's go on. It says in 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 7. We're going to read 7 through 9. It says, 50 men, this is, remember, they're going to the Jordan River. 50 men from the sons of the prophets came and they stood observing them at a distance while the two of them, Elijah and Elisha, stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, which parted to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken to you. And so Elisha answered, please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's funny. He's like, so, hey, I just parted the Jordan River, right, with a smack of my, my mantle. I parted the Jordan River, and uh, we walked across in dry ground. Now that we're on the other side, and I have an opportunity to bless you, um, what is it you would like? And he goes, I'll take some of that. <laughs> Whatever that is, I want that. And, and, and a double portion would be super cool. <laughs> Wouldn't you ask for the same if you'd just seen that? Let's keep going. I'm sorry I had to stop there. 2 Kings 2, verses 10 through 14, it says, Elijah replied to this request, you have asked for something difficult. If you see me being taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. As they continued walking and talking, 
a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. It kind of whooshed right in between them is kind of the, the vision that I get. And then Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. When he could see them no longer, he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two, picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah, and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan River. He took the mantle Elijah had dropped and he struck the water. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? he asked. He struck the water himself and it parted to the right and to the left, and Elisha crossed over. Where is it? This is totally has echoes of a story between Moses and Joshua, right? This, this idea of passing on the mantle of leadership for God's people, um, leading in, in Moses's case, leading them to the promised land, and in Elijah's case, leading them back to God, back to faith, back to a relationship with him. And, and it's, it's this, this challenge of moving from one generation to the next. We see them crossing the Jordan. We see them being blessed on the other side because that's where the promised land lies. And, and even Elisha's name reminds us of this. Joshua, who would have been the protege in the Moses and Joshua relationship, is, it means Yahweh is salvation. That's, that's what his name means. Elisha means God is salvation. There's a, there's a direct connection. We're not supposed to miss that part of the story. God has planned that too. And Elijah's message is clear to, to his protege. He says, look, it's a lot to ask, but if you, you're asking me for a lot, but if you are here to pick up my mantle when I am gone, the reward will be yours. Can you imagine that, right? You're, you're, you're walking along talking to your mentor and all of a sudden this chariot of fire with horses on fire. <laughs> comes flying out of the sky and whooshes right between you, grabs the dude and takes off with him. He's gone back up into the sky and all you see is a mantle floating to the ground. <laughs> that would be a, that would blow your mind. That'd be a mind blower, wouldn't it? So he sees this and, and, then, and then his response, right? He knew this moment was coming, right? This eventuality. In fact, he had told others, stop talking about this, right? He knew, and Elijah, in his words, saying, "What do you want me to? What do you want from me? Is there anything I can give you before this comes?" I'm sure that made that feel much more urgent. It's coming, and it's coming now. And even though he knows it's coming, we see Elisha dropping to his knees. I just have this vision of him dropping to his knees, and he says, "It says, my father, my father." Elijah, Elisha's love, the love that he has for Elijah, is very, very real. And so is the grief. The grief is real too. And moving past that grief has to be one of the most difficult parts of this journey for Elisha. Maybe not just the grief is real and maybe not just the love is real, but maybe the fear is real too. Remember in, in Moses and, and Joshua, in that transition, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, as he's beginning to, to take on that mantle of leadership, uh, the Lord has to tell him several times to be strong and courageous. So you don't have to tell him to be strong and courageous if he's already strong and courageous. 
um, it's likely he feels weak and scared. And it's highly likely that Elisha feels the same way now. Do I know that for sure? No, I don't. But man, that burden of taking on that mantle of leadership, of picking up the legacy that's being left for him and running with it, that's got to feel daunting, right? Um, he's got big shoes to feel, fill. And if he's really got a double portion of, of Elijah's power, and that's the symbolism here is that God is... God has given him access to that. And I want to be very clear about that. Elisha is not suddenly a magician and a magic man. Elijah's power stemmed from God allowing it and providing it through Holy Spirit. And Elisha's is the same way. He's giving him that capacity. But he's got a lot of power now. He can do incredible things for the name of the Lord. And that comes, as Spider-Man's Uncle Ben would say, with great power comes great responsibility, right? He has this grand mission to pursue. And I wonder if he's fearing right now, if he's asking fearful kind of questions. Did I, did, I really get, did I really get a double portion? And if I got a double portion, does that mean double responsibility and I got to accomplish twice as much? Um, did, did I learn enough along the way? Or, or, did I, did I, or am I going to mess up? I know I'm going to mess up. I'm afraid I'm going to mess up what has been bestowed to me. But Knowing the importance of the mission and the glory that awaited him, Elisha looks past those fears, right? He grieves and then he looks past those fears. He picks up the mantle. He stands by, he tears his own clothes. That's grieving, right? He tears his own clothes and then he picks up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah and he goes back and stood at the bank of the Jordan River. And he says, okay, God has brought me this far. And the reward for me in heaven for fulfilling his mission is before me. I may not see it right now. I may not experience it right now because I've watched the way Elijah lived. And Elijah, Elijah fought. Elijah walked with the Lord closely all the way to the end. And Elijah didn't even die. He was simply carried up in a whirlwind. And he says, you know what? That right there, what I've seen, that right there is worth carrying this mantle for. The mission that God has us on, the faith that God has given you and I, it may seem tempting to walk away from it at times. That's why it's so important that we hang on to this truth. We hang on to this truth that God has said from the very beginning, he will always be faithful if we are faithful to him, that he will walk with us as we walk with him, that he will carry us into heaven as he carried his son, and that we will be with him forever, just as Elijah is, just as Elisha is. You and I can too. We have access to the same spirit, the same Lord, and an incredible promise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.